Zoom in on global affairs with insightful debates and exclusive interviews. This is World Insight. Hello and welcome to World Insight with me, Tianwei. Amidst the exchange of gunfire between Israel and Hamas, horrified civilians flee the hail of blitz and mortar shells. The number of casualties on both sides in conflict continues to rise despite the best efforts of residents to protect themselves and their loved ones. People are both physically and mentally injured. On the latest humanitarian crisis, I talked to Fabrizio Carbonis, ICRC's regional director for the Middle East. For more on the humanitarian crisis, we are joined by Fabrizio Carboni, who is the ICRC Regional Director for the Middle East. Mr. Carboni, what a pleasure to see you. Thank you so much for taking your time out of, I would assume, very busy schedule right now. Yes, very. But thank you for, for having me in the show. What is your latest assessment of uh, the conflict between Israel and Palestine, especially the Gaza area? Look, I mean, it's really important to, to stress that we have a humanitarian perspective on, on this crisis. And there is a, a huge feeling of, of sadness and shock and frustration. Shock because what we've seen over the last days is really um, unthinkable. The, the level of violence, the civilians who were affected. I mean, we saw the images of the attack in Israel, and now we're seeing also the civilians in Gaza uh, going through this intense uh, military operation. And what is frustrating is that, as humanitarian, we repeatedly said that if there is no political solution to the crisis, we will face again and again new humanitarian crisis. And that's where we are today. Is it like yesterday once more for you? I mean, you have been having very rich experience in the region, and this is the fear you've been having over the past few years. And when it became a reality, sadly, what was it like for you? I mean, for us, obviously, the first thing, it's our own staff. You know, we have a lot of staff in Gaza. We have a lot of staff in Israel. And, and the, first, the first action is to think about our staff, see if they are safe, because if our staff is not safe, we cannot operate, we cannot respond to um, the crisis. Then the, the, the second reaction after the, the shock of, of what happened is to quickly start thinking about what we can do as a, as a humanitarian actor, and especially a humanitarian actor who has been in, uh, in Israel and occupied territory for many decades. So action was directly for us the main priority and uh, we had different line of work. The first one was obviously related to the people who were captured, taken to, uh, to Gaza and directly established contact uh, with all authorities in Gaza and around for us to play our role, our uh, legal role to uh, access people as authority to allow people to give answer to their family, to inform their family right. and to make sure that they are treated humanly. Yeah. So normally speaking, what is likely to be the procedure if there were cases of so-called hostage taken? So for ICRC, what are some of the normal procedures for you to work with all parties? Can you maybe go through some of the major structures of your work line? Sure. I mean, what we don't do, we don't negotiate the, the release of detainees because we are a humanitarian actor. and. From our perspective, there is no negotiation to take place. Once parties decide to 
release the detainees like we did in, in Yemen a couple of months ago where we you know, took part in the release of thousands of detainees, uh, we organize the, the, the humanitarian release of those people. And so we contact both parties to make sure that there is an agreement on the people who are going to be released. Mm. We make sure that the people are willing to go back and that they are in a in good condition to travel. And then with the parties, we um, make sure that the security in the field allow us to um, to do our humanitarian work, which is to bring people back to to their place. But this procedure is is all around the world. That's mm. how we work in 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 Colombia, in Yemen, uh, in in Israel, if, in occupied territory, if needed. Mr. Kamani, what about the other side of the story? According to the Israeli Defense Minister, the blockade of Gaza is going to include almost everything. Uh, huge impact on the civilian, for example, about the bans on the emission of food, electricity, and the fuel, and the list that goes on. So what does that mean for the civilians over there? What have been your operations like over there as well? How are you trying to contact the Israeli side, for example, in order to make sure there can be better access of, uh, you know, uh, living necessities for the common people there. It's really important to know that Gaza, even without this latest uh, round of violence, is a, is a place which is very fragile and which has seen several rounds of violence. So the starting point for the people in Gaza is already very low. For us, it's clear that civilian population needs to be protected and have access to essential services. And we've made already clear to all parties that you cannot prevent essential services to be provided to the civilian population in Gaza. So this is a dialogue which is uh, ongoing. Now we need to acknowledge that there is this military operation ongoing, but the military operation cannot be at the expense of um, access to essential services for the civilian population. And I would like also to add an element which is often not um, spoken about. It's the psychological impact of this, this violence. You know, you, you have a population who in Gaza just cannot leave Gaza. They are stuck there. And they've seen already several rounds of violence. And you have children, you have fathers and mothers who there is nothing they can do except wait and hope that they won't be uh, targeted or be next to uh, a target of a military operation. I, I, I'm sure you can imagine the psychological toll for all those families, for all those people in, in, in Gaza who um, are simply desperate and terrified by what's happening. Hope is in deficit at this moment, uh, whether it's about resolving this conflict or for the common folks in Gaza. And one could also argue for common folks uh, in Israel as well. When you have your operations, both in Israel and in the Palestine area, as well as other parts of the Middle East, and many of them would develop sympathy, empathy toward the local community, and they should rightly so. How would you reconcile these different calls and discussions within your organization about what to do? Look, I, I really thank you for your question because you're asking probably 
what is the most challenging part in, in our work in Israel and, and occupied territory? As you said, for us as humanitarian actor, I cannot rank pain and misery. Okay, I'm sorry, but uh, a mother is a mother, and I and I don't care uh, on which side of the border uh, she is. If she loses her son, if if she is anxious about finding food for me, it doesn't matter. That's that's a starting point as a humanitarian actor, as a neutral humanitarian actor who works on front line, who works in the middle of conflict. We cannot rank pain. This being said, when it comes to our action. Obviously, we will assist according to needs, and we cannot ignore that in some places there are more resources than others. I mean, it's obvious that on the Israeli side there are more resources to, to assist the, the people who were victims of this violence. But it doesn't mean that I, I, I don't share this pain, and that doesn't mean that I don't acknowledge the suffering of those people. And I think this is really important. And the last point, you know, it's a all conflict are highly politicized, and Israel and, and the, the situation in occupied territory is no exception. And and for us as humanitarian actors, we need to do whatever we can to disconnect ourselves from this political process. Not that it doesn't matter. Actually, we believe that the only solution is a political solution. But as humanitarian actor, if we are tainted by this political environment, we will lose access to people. We will not be in a position to go in the prisons, to be in the field, to assist people. And so it's very, very important for us, and it's really hard, to navigate this space, this humanitarian, neutral space, to avoid being politicized. And it's very hard. It's very hard. doesn't mean that it's easy for us as individuals. As individuals, we all have opinion. But when I'm an ICIC worker, I only focus on what it takes to assist and protect people according to their needs. You know, Mr. Kaboni, I totally understand what you are trying to talk about, especially for a conflict. For people on both sides, morally speaking, it could be easier, or ethically speaking, it could be easier, uh, quote unquote, to choose a side. And yet, for someone like you and your colleagues of this organization, you have to stand with both sides, and you have to guard the interests of both sides, knowing that there are wrongdoings from either of the sides. There are also sufferings from either of the sides. So I totally understand what you're saying. But the Middle East, we have seen over the past two years some dim hope of different groups coming to some degrees of reconciliation and understanding, and even establish uh, diplomatic relations. But now, how do you see this latest conflict likely to throw the region into something that we don't understand yet? Look, in the ICSC, we've been in this region for, for decades. And if I look at the last 15 years, conflict in Syria, conflict in Yemen, conflict in Iraq, the situation in Israel and occupied territory, also the instability we saw in Lebanon, I mean, the level of violence is, is unthinkable. And from a strictly humanitarian point of view, what we see is that the use of force and the security agenda without an agenda which addresses the root causes of violence, a use of force 
which disregards basic humanitarian principle, we haven't seen yet such a thing leading to a more stable and peaceful environment. What we fear and what we've said publicly repeatedly, only the security agenda, to have only a security perspective on, you might, on crisis, political crisis, won't solve the problem, won't address it. And so we will have maybe a couple of years of stability, but at one stage, you'll have instability, you'll have violence again. Mm. And that's what we see. We need a political solution. And political solution implies also conceding. And we don't see this for the time being. And we're talking today about Israeli occupied territory. And on record, we've said repeatedly that we need to address the situation of occupation. We need to address the roots of this crisis and conflict, which are political. Right. Uh, humanitarian actors, we don't solve political problems. We buy time. We, we try to keep people afloat in order for politics, politics with a capital P, to find solutions. And, and the problem is that it's not happening. And, and as humanitarian actors, it's getting more and more difficult to respond to the humanitarian crisis because there is also an additional dimension which is often underestimated. It's the, the climate crisis which comes on top of this violence and instability. And so the needs become overwhelming and there is a necessity to go back to politics and find solution and have the courage, the political courage, to find solutions. We are likely to see more escalation of tensions and conflicts and use of arms and forces in the coming days and probably even longer than that. So uh, to you, what, how can you get prepared for that? You know, first, and, and I'm happy that you ask me this question, we need um, support from states of goodwill. And the support we need is the acknowledgement that we need humanitarian organizations like the ICIC, neutral organization, impartial, and an organization which is in the field. And I think, I mean, it's really important for me to have this opportunity to talk on, on Chinese television to, to really ask for this support. And I know we have it, but it's always important to remind uh, the necessity to have such an organization like mm. the ICS. We're taking huge risk, right. personal risk, to be present. Then to be ready, what we do is obviously to pre-position as much as we can stocks and resources and human uh, resources. And then it's our dialogue with states and parties to, to the conflict to remind them that we need a humanitarian space. Actually, people in, 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 for instance, Gaza today need to have a humanitarian space where they can have, be evacuated if they are wounded, to have access to hospital, right. to receive basic services. So today we prepare for the worst, hoping for the best. My final question for you. We are living in the world of social media, echo chamber, so to speak and you see how the world is divided, very much so, not only where you are, the rest of the world as well, about the conflict going on in your region. So what is the best way for the public to understand exactly what's going on and be able to do some soul searching before they speak? I think that if there is a message is the cause of your fight might be legitimate, but the way you use force as limits, and even if your cause is just, 
you're not allowed to do whatever you want. And you still need to respect basic principle of humanity. Your cause doesn't justify everything in humanitarian terms. I think this is, people need to have this clear distinction between the reason why you believe you are entitled to fight and the way you fight. Fabrizio Cavani, ICRC's Regional Director for the Middle East. All the best to you and your colleagues in the region, of course, the people there as well. Thank you. Thank you very much. Coming up, an EU anti-subsidy probe into Chinese electronic vehicles is underway. Is this an opening salvo in a new trade war? Sideline Story brings you all things sports-related. The hottest topics, latest events, juiciest stories, all with a very personal take. Subscribe to Sideline Story Podcast for heated sports discussions covering events that are happening in China and around the world. Dive into news like never before with Deep Dive, the podcast from CGTN Radio. Join our global reporters for captivating stories and thought-provoking conversations. Search Deep Dive on your favorite podcast platform and get ready to dive in. Welcome back. This is World Inside with me, Tian Wei. The EU officially began its anti-subsidy investigation into the imports of new electronic vehicles from China starting from October. China is now the world's largest electronic vehicle exporter. The overall exports of China's EVs, lithium and solar batteries in the first half of 2023 climbed by 61.6% compared with a year earlier. China's auto exports are consistent with the Chinese economy's upward trajectory during the first half of this year. The competition has led to friction. How should we comprehend the challenges incurred from trade and development? What are the options countries ought to make? On these, I talk to Jeffrey Sachs, professor and director of the Center for Sustainable Development from Columbia University. As we are living in the complex world, uh, Professor Sachs, as you know, the EU has been going into investigation about whether China provides a subsidy with a means uh, for uh, China's uh, new technologies regarding renewable. But on the other hand, the EU uh, has a very ambitious goal in terms of uh, uh, sustainable development, uh, and they certainly need uh, new technologies and electronic cars such as those coming from China and elsewhere. So how do you see this complexity, uh, you know, how people are setting the priorities? Well, there is complexity uh, because of China's success and China's uh, large position in the world economy and in technology. And there are two kinds of tensions that have arisen. Uh, one is, unfortunately, the tension with uh, the United States because the U.S., I think mistakenly, but the U.S. pursues a policy where it uh, tries to be the most powerful, uh, the largest, uh, and so forth, the country in every part of the world. Mm -hmm. Then there's a second reality, which is simply because China's so big, China competes uh, effectively with the core of industries and other uh, high-income, high-tech parts of the world. So China is a low-cost producer of excellent electric vehicles. And we've been on the road here uh, in China in recent days, and you see green plates for the electric vehicles. They're everywhere because 
China has uh, hundreds of electric vehicle producers. Mm -hmm. They're low cost, high quality. Uh, a lot of the world's going to drive in Chinese vehicles. And now Europe is uh, saying, mm, God, we have an auto industry. What's going to happen to us? So they're turning protectionist. Uh, they're trying to find uh, arguments that, well, we don't uh, have to compete on the marketplace because of uh, what is perceived to be somehow unfair competition and so forth. I believe we need global rules of the road. If uh, Europe wants to do an investigation, it should do it through the World Trade Organization as an independent uh, assessor of the rules rather than its own internal investigation, which is bound to be highly political. So we created the WTO, the World Trade Organization, as a body to help adjudicate disputes in a law-based way, not in a political way. Indeed. Unfortunately, the United States uh, really stopped listening to the WTO, and Europe seems to want to be judge and jury of its own complaint, uh, rather than going to the WTO for an objective opinion. Uh, Professor Sachs, at the same time, China's economy is also going through a transformation. As we know, the structural reforms is extremely important, yet nothing can be achieved overnight. So you see the growth rate will remain somewhat mild over the next few years even. Of course, it's already picking up the steam as we speak. So Professor Sachs, as a as someone who has been working on economic policies and transformation, as you did the decades ago, what do you make of what China is going through right now? And uh, how should people look at this process? Well, actually, it's right to say that part of China's difficulty is the deliberate actions of the United States to slow, try to slow down China's growth. Again, I'm very much against this. I've written recently about it. Uh, in the 1980s, Japan surged in manufacturing productivity and American companies uh, got very concerned and the United States took unilateral steps to uh, stop Japanese imports coming into the U.S. economy, for example, uh, and to push Japan to an overvalued currency. And this uh, created in turn a financial crisis and Japanese growth really slowed. And I attribute that to actions that the U.S. deliberately took. Now, here we are basically a bit over 30 years later, and the United States, unfortunately, is actively trying to stop China's exports to the U.S. It's telling its companies, uh, you should friendshore, meaning term I don't like at all, but go to some other country rather than to China, don't invest in China. And of course, uh, the U.S. has put on what it considers, uh, what it aims to be very stringent restrictions on the export of high-tech goods, especially uh, advanced semiconductors to China. Now, I think in the short term, this has slowed China's growth because China's exports to the United States not only stopped growing, but at least this year, so far are negative uh, compared to last year, meaning lower levels than in 2022. That's really shocking, but it's a result, in my view, of the U.S. deliberate policies. But on the other hand, the U.S. is trying to cut China out from cutting-edge technology, but I think it's 
first, not fair, second, not a good idea, and third, not going to be successful. And uh, probably the most uh, dramatic demonstration of that was the recent uh, release of Huawei's uh, new Mate Pro 60 phone, which has a 5G chip in it, uh, which looks to be absolutely superb, Chinese uh, made. Everyone's still scrambling to understand uh, how does this phone work so well. But clearly, uh, it works so well uh, because China has been able to innovate a lot faster than uh, the American policymakers thought. And I think that's generally going to be the case if the U.S. continues on this. Jeffrey Sachs, what an interesting conversation. Thank you so much, sir, as always. Great to be with you. Thanks so much. My conversation with Professor Jeffrey Sachs. That's all the time we have for today. I'm Tian Wei on behalf of my team. Thanks for being with us.